What is Truth? 9-11 Written by Greg Fernandez Jr. Narrated by Ryan Barry The 9-11 Commission On November 27, 2002, President Bush and the United States Congress finally created the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States. The purpose of the commission was to investigate facts, circumstances relating to the terror attacks of September 11, 2001, including those relating to intelligent agencies, law enforcement agencies, diplomacy, immigration issues, and border control, the flow of assets to terrorist organizations, commercial aviation, the role of congressional oversight and resource allocation, and other areas determined relevant by the commission. The commission would prepare a full and complete account of the circumstances surrounding the September 11, 2001 attacks. After reviewing more than 2.5 million pages of documents and interviewing more than 1,200 individuals in 10 countries, the 9-11 Commission also held 19 days of hearings and took public testimony from 160 witnesses. Our aim has not been to assign individual blame. 9-11 Commission Report The 9-11 Commission ultimately failed because of what they didn't put into final reports. There is no mention of Building 7 or eyewitness testimony about explosions in the basement, lobby, or various floors of the Twin Towers. There is also no logical explanation as to why the Twin Towers collapsed straight down at freefall speeds in less than 10 seconds, after burning for 60 minutes each. Henry Kissinger was originally chosen to be the chairman of the 9-11 Commission by President Bush on November 27, 2002. Kissinger resigned as chairman on December 14, 2002, reportedly due to privacy issues, as he did not wish to disclose certain information about his clients or business associates. Nevertheless, Henry Kissinger would go on to be a chief advisor to the Bush administration regarding the Iraq War. After 9-11, Michael Springman, former official at the U.S. consular office in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, explained that his office was used by the CIA to bring recruits into America for training during the 1980s. This same office in Jeddah is where many of the 9-11 hijackers obtained their visas to enter the United States. After Flight 11 hit the North Tower on September 11th, an unnamed man reportedly gave NYPD Detective Yolk Chin the passport to Saddam al-Sukwami. Sukwami was one of the first five terrorists who boarded Flight 11 at Logan International Airport in Boston. Somehow, Sukwami's passport survived an airplane crash into the North Tower and the collapse of the building. A former high-level intelligence officer told journalist Seymour Hirsch, whatever trail was left was left deliberately. For the FBI to chase. Nawaf al Hazami and Khalid al Minhar were supposedly being monitored by the CIA prior to 9 11. The alleged Al Qaeda operatives allegedly entered the United States under their real names, yet neither the FBI nor the State Department was informed by the CIA. The CIA claimed that they lost two operatives somewhere in Thailand after an Al Qaeda meeting. The 9 11 Commission accepted the CIA's explanation. These same two guys, Hamzi and Minhar, may have been assisted by someone who was under FBI surveillance for alleged connections to terrorist groups. The two men resided at the house of a known FBI informant. The FBI claimed they were not aware of the two men. The documentary film Loose Change, Final Cut, covers the story of three 9-11 hijackers, Ahmed Al-Nami, Ahmed Al-Ghamdi, and Saeed Al-Ghandi who allegedly trained at the Pensacola Naval Air Station. Pensacola News of the Washington Post countered the allegation speculating that the hijackers stole the identities of military trainees. Based on the verbal account of the Air Force spokesman, Colonel Ken McClellan, Mohammed Atta once attended the International Officer's School at Maxwell Gunter Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama. 
In 2005, Republican Congressman Kurt Weldon and Colonel Anthony Schaefer told the public about a Pentagon intelligence team that identified the future alleged hijackers, Mohammed Atta and Marwan el-Shahi, back in 2000. The 9-11 Commission was told about this information, but still concluded that Mohammed Atta was not identified by authorities in the United States before 9-11. On September 30, 2001, ABC reported, Federal authorities tell ABC News they've now tracked more than $100,000 from banks in Pakistan to two banks in Florida to accounts held by suspected hijack ringleader Mohammed Atta. And Time Magazine is reporting some of that money came in the days just before the attacks and could be traced directly to people connected with Osama bin Laden. On October 9, 2001, Manoj Joshi, writing in the Times of India, reported, Top sources confirmed here on Tuesday the general lost his job because of his evidence, India produced to show this links to one of the suicide bombers that wrecked the World Trade Center. The U.S. authorities sought his removal after confirming the fact that $100,000 were wired to WTC hijacker Mohammed Atta from Pakistan by Ahmed Umar Sheikh at the instance of General Mohammed. Senior government sources have confirmed that India contributed significantly to establishing the link between the money transfer and the role played by the dismissed ISI chief. While they did not provide details, they said that the Indian inputs, including Sheikh's mobile phone number, helped the FBI in tracing and establishing the link. Pakistan General Mohammad Ahmed had meetings with Senator Bob Graham, Porter Gross, and CIA Director George Tenet in August of 2001. On the morning of September 11, 2001, General Mohammed had breakfast with Senator Bob Graham and former CIA agent and future CIA Director Congressman Porter Gross. The general would quietly retire in October of 2001, but not before the Times of India exposed the real reason the general retired, which was due to the evidence of the wire transfer. What the 9-11 Commission says about the funding of the 9-11 plot should concern us all. To date, the U.S. government has not been able to determine the origin of the money used for the 9-11 attacks. Ultimately, the question is of little practical significance. Al-Qaeda had many avenues of funding. If a particular funding source had been dried up, Al-Qaeda would have easily tapped into a different source or diverted funds from another project to fund an operation that could cost $400,000 to $500,000 over nearly two years. The informant. On February 26, 2004, the 9-11 Commission investigators were given the transcripts of the Office of the Inspector General's interview with Barus Sarshar. The interview took place on January 20, 2004. Sarshar worked for the FBI as a language specialist when an informant told two FBI agents about Osama bin Laden's plan to fly airplanes into tall buildings inside the United States, planes possibly loaded with explosives. The FBI agents filed out a report for an ongoing criminal investigation using 302 forms. Sarshar said that the 302 forms were specifically used by FBI agents to report information gathered from the Bureau's assets and or informants. A February 2004 FBI case titled Kamikaze Pilots gave the 9-11 commissioners information about a key FBI asset slash informant related to the case. The FBI asset slash informant was never questioned by the 9-11 commission. In April of 2001, Sarshar was asked to accompany two special agents from the FBI WFO, Tony and John, to a meeting arranged with his informant. This was during a criminal investigation that was about to turn into a court case. The informant had vital information on the situation, having played an extremely important role in building the case. 
The informant whose information was translated to the FBI agents by Sarshar said two extremely reliable and long-term sources, one from Afghanistan and one on the Afghanistan-Pakistan border, notified me that an active Mujahideen group led by bin Laden had issued an order to attack certain targets in the United States and were planning to attack as we spoke. The informant continued, According to my guys, bin Laden's group is planning a massive terrorist attack in the United States. The order has been issued. They are targeting major cities, big metropolitan cities. They think four or five cities, New York City, Chicago, Washington, D.C., and San Francisco, possibly Los Angeles or Las Vegas. They will use airplanes to carry out the attacks. They said that some of the individuals involved in carrying this out are already in the United States. They are in the U.S., living among us, and I believe some in the U.S. government already know about all of this. Sarshar noted that he assumed the informant meant the CIA or the White House. The news alarmed the two FBI agents, who then instructed Sarshar to have the informant repeat what he had just said. After doing so, the two agents began to take notes of their own. One agent, Tony, asked if there was a specific date for this coming attack. Although the informant was not given an exact date, the attack was coming very soon, possibly within the next three months. This was in April of 2001. The informant also mentioned that they may use bombs, planting bombs inside these planes, maybe the cargo, and have them blown up over the populated cities. Siebel Edmonds wrote that Barus Sarshar worked as a GS-12 language specialist with top-secret clearance at the FBI Washington field office. After leaving the FBI in 2002, Sarshar provided his testimony on the kamikaze pilots to several congressional offices and investigators, including staff of the Senate Judiciary Committee and the committee's leading Democrat at the time, Patrick Leahy, and the Justice Department Inspector General Office. Siebel D. Edmonds is a former FBI translator who believes the FBI, the Pentagon, and the State Department have been infiltrated by the Turkish and Israeli-run intelligence network. She is also the founder of the National Security Whistleblowers Coalition, NSWBC. Edmonds said that the FBI received information in April of 2001 from a reliable Iranian intelligence asset that Osama bin Laden was planning attacks on four or five cities with airplanes. The public has still not been told of the intentional obstruction of intelligence, wrote Edmonds. The public has not been told that the certain information, despite its relevance to terrorist activities, is not shared with counterterrorism units. This was true prior to 9-11, and it remains true today. We thought he was pretty... We thought he was a pretty credible guy, said former Senate Judiciary Committee investigator Chris Kolsnick, who interviewed Sarshar nearly two years ago as an investigator for a Washington public interest law firm handling federal whistleblower cases. Siebel Edmonds wrote, The 9-11 commissioners had initially refused to interview Mr. Sarshar. He was one of the several witnesses from the intelligence and law enforcement organizations with relevant testimonies and reports who were denied access to the commission, the ones that we know of. It was only after pressure from members of the 9-11 Family Steering Committee and memorandums from the congressional offices that the commissions reluctantly agreed to interview Mr. Sarshar. However, his entire testimony was omitted from their final report. According to the Chicago Tribune investigative reporter, even FBI Director Mueller appeared to be baffled by the commissioner's lack of inquiry into this particular case. FBI Director Robert Mueller who expected to be asked about the case during an appearance before his commission in April, was surprised when the commissioners never raised the question, according to aides. Edmonds then added, During my short tenure with the Bureau, I was briefed about this case by not only Mr. Sarshar, 
but other first-hand witnesses, and I saw the actual 302 forms filed with the unit squad supervisor. FBI language specialists get to keep a copy of the reports slash forms. Edmonds believes that there never was any real investigation into the horrific events used in reshaping not only our country, but the entire world. If I were you guys, I take this extremely seriously, the informant told Sarshar in front of the two FBI agents. If I had the same position I had in Savak, I'd put all my men on this around the clock. I can't vouch for my sources, the reliability. Make sure you put it in the hands of the top guys in counterterrorism. After a few months, Berus Sarshar found himself translating information from the same informant to the same FBI agents. This time, the informant mentioned tall buildings as a possible target. He once again stressed that the FBI should get more information from Pakistan's ISI, stating that, after all, they are your guys and they already know all about this. Then came September 11, 2001. Sarshar went on to explain, That morning we heard the news, and all of us ran out to the next unit to watch the CNN footage on the TV screens installed out there. As soon as I saw the planes hitting those buildings, I said to myself, Oh my God, oh dear God, we were warned about this. We were told about this, very specifically. I almost fainted. I kept on hearing the informant's words. I kept hearing his last warnings, begging us to do something fast. Sarshar continued, and we had done nothing. Now it was already way too late. I felt nauseous. I felt sick. He wasn't the only one who felt sick. When Sarshar locked eyes with one of the two agents who conversed with the informant, the agent told him, We fucked this up. The Bureau fucked our country. Why? Later, while going over another assignment with the same two agents, Sarshar asked them what they were going to do about the situation. He said that the agents avoided eye contact at first. Tony finally told him, Listen, Freelds called us into the office and gave us an order, an absolute order. I asked them what the order was. He said, We never got any warnings. Those conversations never existed. It never happened. Period. He said this is very sensitive, and no one should ever mention a word about this case. Period. Sarshar worked in foreign counterintelligence and counterterrorism as a contact linguist and a language specialist employee. He testified during MEK prosecutions in California and was involved in an FBI raid that was covered by Fox News. He believes that Siebel Edmonds might have been seen as some sort of father figure. He was classmates with her father in Tehran, Iran. Siebel Edmonds wrote that Sarshar wanted the commission to know about an asset debriefing he attended with Blank and another agent whose name he could not remember. He said that he hesitated to bring it forward because he did not think anything had been done deliberately. He thinks if the FBI had known about the plot, they would have stopped it. He provided us the code name and the name of the asset. When asked the reason why he did not come forward, Sarshar said he didn't want to cause problems for the FBI. Siebel adds, Sarshar also thought the FBI knew about information regarding a kamikaze pilot Sarshar passed on the kamikaze information in a letter he wrote to the FBI director Robert Mueller. Beru Sarshar once asked the FBI agent, Tony, if sharing this information with other agency wasn't a bad idea. Tony reportedly told him that special agent in charge Thomas Freelds was obligated to submit what he got. Everything he gets under counterterrorism to the HQ guys in charge of the White House national security briefings. He always does. So the White House and other agencies have already heard about this. The informant warms Sarshar, shouting in Farsi, Why don't you discuss it with the CIA? They know. Tell the White House. Don't let them sit on it until it's too late. Alternatives In December of 2003, Senator Max Cleland resigned from the 9-11 Commission, calling it a national scandal. Cleland said, 
One of these days we'll have to get the full story because the 9-11 issue is so important to America, but this White House wants to cover it up. 9-11 Commissioner Rob Carey stated, There are ample reasons to suspect that there may be some alternative to what is outlined in our version. 9-11 Commissioner Tim Romer said, We were extremely frustrated with the false statements we were getting. We were not sure of the intent, whether it was to deceive the commission or merely part on fumbling bureaucracy. Chairman of the commission, Thomas Keene, spoke about the intimidation factor during their investigation. The commission feels unanimously that the intimidation to have somebody sitting behind you all the time, who you either work with or works with your agency. Let us never forget that Bush and Cheney refused to testify separately before the commission. Instead, the two would only speak to the commission off the record, not under oath, and with a very strict time limit. Why not go under oath? Florida Senator Bob Graham was surprised by the degree in which agencies were not communicating. But also, I was surprised at the evidence that there were foreign governments involved in facilitating the activities of at least some of the terrorists in the United States. I am stunned that we have not done a better job of pursuing that to determine if the other terrorists received similar support. And even more important, if the infrastructures of a foreign government assisting terrorists still exist for the current generation of terrorists who are planning on the next plots. To me, this is an extremely significant issue, and most of the information is classified. I think overly classified. Mr. Graham went on to say, I believe the American people should know the extent of the challenge that we face in terms of foreign government involvement. That would motivate the government to take action. The 9-11 Commission did not have subpoena power, and some members felt that they were denied access to vital information. Their final report was released on July 22, 2004. Douglas Sturm, a professor at Bucknell University teaching political science and religion, told Salon.com, that there should be a new investigation to investigate closely and carefully a series of questions about the tragic events that have yet to receive fully satisfactory answers. Many people still feel the same way, including some of the Commission members. 28 pages of the 9-11 Commission report were censored for over 15 years. Those pages focused on the connections between Saudi Arabia and the events of September 11, 2001. I'm saying that... I'm saying that's deliberate. I'm saying that the delay in relating this information to the American public out of the hearing was deliberately slow-walked. The 9-11 Commission was deliberately slow-walked because the administration's policy was, as its priority was, we're going to take Saddam Hussein out. Georgia Senator Max Cleland. This has been What is Truth? 9-11. Written by Greg Fernandez Jr. Narrated by Ryan Berry. Copyright by Greg Fernandez Jr. Production copyright by Greg Fernandez Jr.